Okay, so um, thank you once again for coming to SOHOP, or Thursday Night Bible Study. I'm Jonathan, one of the elders at Cornerstone Church, and uh, we are going to be starting now with our ninth session uh, lesson um, for our Bible study. Now, remember that one of the things that we want to do here with this curriculum is to be able to have a systematic way in which we can walk together as um, church members and as, as people who are part of Cornerstone who can uh, further understand the important principles of what makes a church a church, right? And so, um, and especially when it comes to living together as um, part of the body of Christ. And so, we have gone through now eight of our topics, and now we are on... Um, Number nine, and that is church discipline, actually. They gave me the fun one. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> so we're going to go ahead and, and dive into that. But uh, I just want to remind you again, and we can go to the next one, that now, um, thankfully, we do have all of these previous sessions online. So you can actually go to sermonaudio.com slash ccmblife. Uh, or there's a pinned Facebook post on our Facebook page where you can just go directly to it and you'll see all the sessions. And um, remember, this is material that has been primarily posted by Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., uh, readapted for Cornerstone with their permission. And so um, we're thankful for their ministry as well, and we learned from them and also apply what we got going on specifically for our church and for the members of our church. Um, and so... I just want to make sure that we're mentioning something important here. In all of these sessions that we've been talking about, as far as the uh, living as a church, are th- those are signs of a healthy church. All right? We want to make sure that we are not distinct, you know, that we're making the distinction between a local church of the Lord Jesus Christ and a social gathering. And there are many aspects that we need to see in a church and many marks of a healthy church that have been brought up historically by theologians and, and by you know, churches and pastors throughout the church history. And so a lot of the things that we have already talked about that we continue to encourage you to go through, like membership, why biblical membership is important, why preaching is important in the church, that particular time in church where we do expositional church, where we go through books of the Bible, where we make the point of the passage, the point of the sermon, and not, you know, 80% anecdotes and 20% one or two verses, and etc. Governance, how we believe that there are pastors, not a single pastor, and what is the biblical evidence for that, where we believe that there are, they can be called elders or pastors, right? Uh, and all this, um, where we believe that church fellowship comes into place. Uh, how do we deal with this contentment in the church? Uh, how do we relate to those leaders who are placed in the church? And then another one of those huge um, points to see in a healthy church is how does the church do, what does the church believe about church discipline? And th- that's the other point that would actually tell you, okay, this people are trying to be biblical. These people here are really 
uh, trying to go with the water of God says, now I'm not saying here, hey, we do it right here at Cornerstone, and that's why you should keep coming now, right? But it's, it's, it's as we try to be obedient to God's word on how God has laid out what he's got for the local church and how we try to see that in scripture and be obedient to that, I think it's important for all, all of us to see as we are part of such lo- local church and see what they have um, as far as the, the, the things that they have in place, right? The, are they gospel-centered? Do they do church discipline? How is their membership? Uh, how about the sacraments? How are they practiced, right? And that's what makes a church. Um, and so we're going to continue through these um, uh, lessons here. Later on, as you can see, we'll continue with corporate worship, which is a, a very a great lesson there in serving and giving evangelism. But today, again, <laughs> it's uh, the topic of church discipline. Now, uh, a central theme running through this class is the tension between God's grand purpose for the church, that we should, you know, should be the manifestation of His glory on earth, and our sin. Much of what we've discussed has been how sin-prone Christians can glorify God through their love and unity together. But there are times when sin attacks our church, and those who fall under it don't repent. So those are tenuous times for church unity. It's very important how they even handle those things. And so handling those things or, or the lack of handling those things really determines a lot about the seriousness that that church or those church leaders have in regards to dealing with people's sin and discipline. We could choose to ignore sin and, and, and threaten the distinctive calling of Christ's church or we might act harshly in self-righteousness, right? Destroying our unity. Fortunately, the Bible has shed wisdom on this issue where ours is lacking. So we refer to the Bible's approach as church discipline, which is basically a biblical response to unrepentant sin. Church discipline, a biblical response to unrepentant sin. And far from the perceptions of witch trials and scarlet letters, right? Discipline is inherently positive thing. It is a positive thing. It's, it's commanded in scripture as for our good. It means that we care for each other by speaking the truth in love about our sin. It means we protect the church from serious unrepentant sin, which brings disrepute to Christ. And, and, and that's what we're all about, right? It's about honoring Christ and His name and how we strive each, each other as members of the church, as part of the local church, on how do we bring honor to Christ in these situations, which is the end goal. Now, tragically, the world can often sneer at the church's conduct. He's a leader in the church, but he's worse than us. Well, discipline is God's tool for preserving the reputation of Christ in His church. By making it clear that Christ does not condone such sin. And unfortunately we've seen the example of the opposite in many cases. But the model for discipline in the church is the discipline that our loving Heavenly Father exercises as He deals with us. The book of Hebrews tells us, For the Lord disciplines... The ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives, right? 
And the goal of discipline is righteousness, right? It is restoration. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, right? But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And that is Hebrews 12:11. So if you want to have those references, Hebrews 12:6 and Hebrews 12:11. So now this evening, we'll consider how the Bible instructs us to practice church discipline. And doing this strengthens unity in the church and protects Christ's reputation. We also think about how we as members bear a responsibility to be involved in the discipline process. So before we get any farther though, we need some definitional clarity here. Uh, when it comes to specifically the word discipline, right? Because we've heard that word uh, quite a lot and maybe used in a couple of different contexts. So there's actually two kinds of disciplines. Uh, so the, f- the first one we can mention is the formative discipline, and the second one is the corrective discipline. So when we say church discipline, we generally think about the second. But the first is much more common. So first... Formative discipline, leading people to maturity in Christ through positive instruction and teaching. For example, when the word is preached to us and we're convicted, when Rusty gets up here, preaches the word of God, we get out of here all mashed up and messed up in the Lord. Encouraged, that's what I mean. Convicted, right? And ready to head on the next week, knowing that we're sinners, but Christ is a great Savior. And that by His grace we continue to live in life, I'm not saying that that's, you know, that's your... <laughs> but, you know, as we continue to do that every Sunday, that is a formative discipline, right? Where we get the Word of God we, uh, through the preaching of the Word, when we're convicted, or when, even when other Christians encourage each other. That's formative discipline. And I was actually thinking about that a little while, and I was telling Lavi about it, and the value of, 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 of friends who beyond the situational conversations, how a friend can ask farther, and how's your heart about it? You know, how many friends do we have that after you tell them what's going on about whatever, they can say, how's how's your heart about it? You know, those are things that really help each other grow in Christ. And that's part of the formative discipline that we talk about. Um... Now, I need somebody to look for Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, Mike. And I need someone, someone, Chris. No, no, not Chris. Maybe somebody, Nick, I don't know. Hebrews 10, 24, 25. And while they look for that, formative discipline is important because God uses it to prevent the sin that would... Re- this is important here. The formative discipline, the first one that we talked about, is important because God uses it to prevent the sin that would require corrective discipline. So you see the connection between the two, right? In a constant formative discipline, when the Word of God is being preached, where we have the Thursday nights, where we have important and spiritual conversations with one another, etc., those are aspects of formative discipline that should encourage us encourage us in Christ more and more to actually prevent to go to the corrective discipline part. So, um, Mike, thank you for that, because there were even more ways outside of the two that I mentioned where 
all those things contribute greatly to that formative discipline indeed. And Nick, if you can read Hebrews 10 to 24, 25. How important is that verse, isn't it? Encourage each other to love and good works. And that's part of what we've been talking about. Going that extra step, right? On how we can encourage each other to do all those things. And not neglecting to meet with one another. As we're obedient to God's word in gathering in his local body. And so those are some examples as we saw of that formative discipline. Um, and again, it's important because God uses to prevent the sin that would require the corrective discipline, right? Now, <clears throat> corrective discipline, on the other hand, is correcting sin in a believer's life. Everything from privately confronting each other to formal excommunication, sorry. It's where we have to say, for example, hey, Joe, I think you're wrong to say that. Or even finally, according to Jesus' teaching, Mary, I know that you're claiming to be a Christian, but you've got to treat, well, we've got to treat you like a non-Christian because you won't stop lying, for example. That, all that is corrective discipline. And we'll see the, the, the example that God's Word gives, particularly to actually hear a statement like one that you would give to Mary in that example. So tonight we're going to concentrate on the second of these kinds of disciplines, the corrective discipline. I think uh, the, the first one... Uh, went more with some of the other points before. So as we ask the question, why do, why do we do it? Well, we have to understand that we do it primarily because the Word of God tells us to. Right? But it also gives some specific goals in doing so. First, the good of the person disciplined. Discipline is loving because it warns us and corrects our sin, and we profit from that. And, f and for that person who's living in unrepentant sin, it clarifies that his actions don't support a profession of faith in Christ. Second, the good of the other Christians as they see the serious nature of sin and its consequences. And third, or third, because there's one more, for the health of the, of the church as a whole. It stops sin that could lead to strife and conflict. Or confusion for less mature Christians about what it means to follow Jesus. It's also for that protection aspect. And fourth, the corporate witness of the church. Church discipline protects our witness, corporate witness to a watching world, right? People notice when there is a whole community of believers whose lives are different from the world. They can easily discount our message when our behavior looks just the same as the world around us. And unfortunately, we have, I'm sure that if I ask for a raise of hands, we've all probably raised our hands. How many friends, people do we know that have not been to church or gone to church because there has been that particular experience where the example of Christ was not displayed by a so-called Christian, right? And how that hurts the witness of the church outside for those looking outside looking in. Now, add all those four up to the main goal of church discipline, and that is to make known the excellence of our Redeemer. And again, we mentioned this before, to honor the name of Christ. We want to honor Him. 
We want to make his name look great. That's what it means to glorify the Lord, to display who he is in the radiance of his being. And we glorify the Lord also by being responsible on how we think that somebody who should be part of the body is not acting like so consistently, right? And what the Word of God tells us in obedience that we should do about it. And so the main goal, and so we spend the rest of our time here together, uh, the rest, the next three hours and a half, talking about... <laughs> talking about how we can exercise church discipline for our good and God's glory. So, here's a typo here, yeah. <laughs> to do that, we'll just walk through some important questions, and I think that you can find them in the bulletin as well. So, what if someone sins against you? Right? Do you have a comment? Yeah, go ahead. That is exactly what we're going to be mentioning here. And so keeping it small, confronting the brother. I like a phrase that you said, know, correct me there, know enough of what your job is. How, how did you say it? it you know, in, meaning obedience to the word of God True. goes. Okay, you have to have your mind renewed about what you yes. Have the of God there. Yes. Yes, and and yes, and we're gonna and we're gonna learn not to when not to do it. You know, when I I saw you kind of like laughing at some kind of joke that you shouldn't have laughed at. I'm not gonna, you know, when should you pull them out or when should you gather and gather witnesses or you know, <laughs> in every single issue or and so we, we, there's there's discernment there and we're gonna talk about this right because we all sin and we're all sinners right and. Uh, uh, and and wi in which situations here it needs to happen, and so that those are d that's a great preamble of what we have coming out because we will read the main verse that has to do with church discipline, which is Matthew 18. So uh, we're going to go through that. And so again, the first question here: So what if someone sins against you, right? So first, what do you do if a believer sins against you? How should you react? Do you give them a piece of your mind and then give them the or, or give them the silent treatment or do you say nothing and rebuild resentment in your heart? You know, there, there are many choices, right, of, of response. But let's see what Jesus says, right? And so I want everybody to go to Matthew 18, 15, and 17, if you have not. Well, I haven't mentioned that yet, but it's everyone. Let's go to Matthew 18, 15 through 17. So we can just uh, read along, follow along, um, and kind of dive into the verse. This verse is monumental to our conversation and it drives um, around what the church believes in church discipline along with other verses that Mike has already mentioned that we will mention here in a minute like Galatians and some others. Um, but I'm going to start reading here while you get there. So Matthew 18:15 through 17. So if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have you've gained your brother. If he does not listen, take two or take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence or of two or three witnesses. If he refuses, or if he or she refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. 
And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. So as we run through the logic of this verse, right, we should first go and talk with the one who sinned against us. And now we're keeping it right now to sin against us. And we can call that per person the offender, right? And we'll see more the specific case that Mike was telling us about uh, of actually rebuking a brother when he is in sin where there are other New Testament verses, evidences that tells us that we should do that. And in this case, in Matthew's sinning against us, right? So if he won't listen, we're to take a few others along, right? Witnesses uh, that will support the claim. If he still refuses to listen... We will tell it to the church, which should expel him if he refuses to repent then. Considering this more in detail, we, let's think about the first step, right? In most cases, that first conversation will resolve things. Either he'll repent or you'll realize that you were mistaken as well. So how can we prepare for a conversation like that? Just going back to that first step, right? Now, first, and like we say always here, <laughs> as many steps of what we need to do in life, the first thing is what? Pray. Pray. Pray for that person. Pray that God would be, uh, would, would be the one you know, to grow um, this situation to where they would, there can be um, fruit from it, where there can be truth being uh, lifted up, right? That they would desire to go God more. Pray. And we, and we actually mentioned that, I think, a couple of weeks ago. When you pray for somebody who has offended you, when you pray for somebody who has done wrong to you, you start, God actually starts changing your heart, too, on how you approach, will approach that person, and not in a spirit of revenge, but as according to what God's Word says, in a spirit of gentleness, right? So this will soften your heart, like I said, toward them in preparation for your talk. Now, second, make sure that you have a good cause to go to the offender. And that's what we had talked about. Some sins now. And, and so this is some of the things that we need to consider. Some sins are objective. Right? Like he hit me. Right? Or others are not so much. Right? Like he's, he's being really proud. We can talk to a, another believer about either category. But the less objective a sin is. The more we need to be ready to explain our concern. But then drop the matter, the matter if they don't agree. So we don't go and, and, you know, we don't go on and say, you know, you're proud or repent or, I'll, you know, I'll tell it to the church, you know. Rather, it's more like sister based or brother based on the words you're choosing. I really fear that you're speaking out of pride. You know, do you think that might be true? Now, third, examine your own heart to make sure your motives are proper. Make sure that you are not going to the offender out of anger, revenge, an attitude of superiority, or some other sinful attitude, right? Make sure that your desire is reconciliation of the relationship for the good of both the offender and yourself and for God's glory. And as Jesus says, confess your own sin first. And then you'll be able to see more clearly into your brother's sin, as Matthew 7, 5 says, right? Looking at logs and specks. And fourthly, 
or before fifth, we, <laughs> we be very careful to others about this person's sin. You see that Jesus says to go talk to them, not to your best friend, and not to the offender's wife or husband, but talk to them, right? It's, it's fine to seek counsel on how to have such conversation if you need to, but be very careful that that conversation does not become gossip, right? And remember that even when you need counsel from another person, you can almost always get advice from them without mentioning the name of the offender, right? And so let's be very cautious that our goal is always the honor of Christ, right? And His name and the restoration of the person and not trying to bring somebody down by our own means. No, God is in control of that, right? And finally, when you do talk to the offender, remember to act and speak in a spirit of gentleness, humility, and love. A gentle answer, we've talked about this verse before, right? A gentle answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. Now all of these things will make the step of approaching the offender more effective and preserve the, and protect the church's unity by, abo- by avoiding obstacles such as pride or gossip, right? Now before we move on to the next step in Matthew 18, let, let me make two further points about this first in Matthew. And, and this kind of relates to what we've heard First, you may be wondering, why do I go to my brother for every little, you know, or actually, do I go to my brother for every little offense, right? And most certainly not. Love covers a multitude of sins, and Proverbs tells us that to overlook an offense is a glorious thing and demonstrates the patience and forbearance, right? And like it says in Proverbs 19.11, but when should we go then? That's, that's when we need to ask that question. And so... Two questions that we can ask ourselves. First, has the, offended, has the offense led to a broken relationship between you? Does it, become, does it come to mind frequently? Does it make you feel different toward that person for more than a passing moment? Is it difficult for you to forgive? If the answer is yes to any of these, then you should probably go and talk to the offender, right? Now, two, what's the danger of this sin to the Offender, Keep in mind what James writes, right? Whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So is the sin we're talking about endangering this person's ability to reflect Christ in the surrounding world? Is it a, a, a sign of larger struggles that could lead there? And so all these questions are always important to talk about before we come forward. And the second point that I want to make in response to the question, when should I go, is that Jesus tells us to initiate a conversation whether we're the offender or the offended. Matthew 18 tells the wronged person to seek reconciliation, but Matthew 5, 23 and 24, if we remember that, says that if you think that someone, that if you think someone has something against you, that is, you're the offender, right? Then it's also your obligation to speak up. Matthew 5 even says that you're on your way to, that if you're on your way to worship God, you remember your brother, and you remember that your brother has something against you, you need to stop, right? Or if you have something against your brother, you need to stop and go ahead and be reconciled with that person. So that's how much Jesus cares about your relationships in the church, is both approaches, right? And so 
both of those are difficult. When we go to someone for an issue or when we have to go to someone because of our own issues, right? But they are necessary in order to form that Christ-like community. And so that's why it is critical for us to examine our relationships with others before coming to the Lord's table. When there is conflict, both the offender and the one who is being wronged are to initiate the reconciliation. It's almost like we're to trip over each other, rushing to reconciliate, right? <laughs> and, and, and what a beautiful picture would that be, right? To see restored relationships. And so on that step, going to the brother, right? Now step two, and as we follow the flow of Matthew, Matthew 18, taking one or two others, right? So back to Matthew 18, we see that if the offended person won't listen, and it is clear that his sin, that sin has been committed, we're to take one or two others with us. This serves two purposes, right? First, the offender may more likely listen to a neutral party than the person who's been sinned against. And, the other, and this other person also serves to witness what happened at the meeting in case that discipline advances to the other step, right? So let me offer a few thoughts here on this process if you ever find yourself at that stage. First, before you take this step, considering how, again, how objective the sin is. Are you confronting them because you think they are spending too much money or because they are being proud, prideful. Now, only God knows their heart, right? If this is a subjective issue like that, then we better drop the matter and pray for the Holy Spirit to convict them, right? And second, if you move forward, if that's such a pattern of clear sin, make sure that the person or people to bring with you are trustworthy and discreet, impartial, and have good judgment. And third, let the offender know that you're, what you're about to do as well. Don't spring a conversation on them without warning, right? Fourth, be careful not to try to lobby the witness to your side. Just let the facts speak for themselves. Any questions or comments here so far? Yeah. And again, returning to the point at the beginning, that is exactly those marks that you see of a true, healthy, biblical church, right? When they see those marks, and especially that one that marks the discipline that speaks of membership, right? How would you know who the authority is going to if you didn't have that committed body of believers in that local church who are under that authority that when things like this need to happen in obedience to God's word for the purposes that we've heard can then proceed forward, right? Now people who we've made a covenant together to love one another, to strive for holiness together, when those moments come, when the body of Christ is seen acting biblically. Um, Russ, do you have anything? I mean, pretty much if you assign a noun to that person, <laughs> then it's, it's quite clear that you know, if you assign it, and is, is that grammatically the noun, right? No, pre-noun. Let's not even go with, with grammar tonight. <laughs> pre-noun? Pronoun. Oh, my. I barely speak Spanish. And so, in English. Um, so, it, it, it pretty much you have a, a title like that where you would comfortably assign the title, then, yes, it is an issue that must be dealt with. And, and, and to that point about unbelievers, it's something that, you know, that in my heart I, I had a, a lot 
because to think about because how many of us get worked up about maybe friends, family members that we know who are not believers but sin? Well, th the Word of God says that everything they do is sin until they know Christ. And so can we expect that they would spring up to Christ's likeness? <laughs> and so and a lot of us get worked up about them. But what about converting that into a prayer that the Lord will save their soul, that we will be tools of preaching the gospel to them and show their love to them instead of being like, I can't believe that person. Well, we kind of have to believe that that person such and such because they're not in Christ. And that's why to the opposite of that, those who are in Christ showing a consistency of unbelief, sin, pattern, is something that must be dealt with in order to show. Now, we're, we're not talking about perfection again. Again, we're talking about if you can pretty much assign a pronoun <laughs> to that pattern of sin to that person, to those acts of sin that deny completely that you have, that could lead to deny that you have an union with Christ, they must be dealt with for the fruit of repentance which we hope for. That's what we hope for when we go to them and pray for, right? For the glory of God. Or to confirm that they are indeed not believers. And that our conversations then from that point forward have to be only gospel centered. Every time you would find a person around the market, if they, if they claim to be Christians but have unrepentant sin, what is the conversation you need to have with them? It's the gospel. It's to drive them back to understand that Christ died for those sins that they do not want to leave. And we'll see more of that here. I'm getting ahead of myself. So we're moving to step three, right? The, 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 if the offender still refuses to listen, the church needs to be brought in. And again, like Mike said, you know, this is so important and yet so many places and churches do not practice it. And they can excommunicate him if he still refuses to repent, right, as we mentioned. Now in Matthew 18, Jesus doesn't specific, specify what the leaders of the church are to be consulted prior to taking the matter to the church, but certainly... Like Mike said, that intermediate steps seems appropriate and consistent with these instructions. Looking at these steps in Matthew 18 then, we can see Jesus trying to involve the fewest number, as we saw before, of people possible. But he's willing to make things public if that's what will wake up the offender. And at the final state, even if he uses those outside of the church and Satan himself to providentially push toward repentance, right? Because at the end it talks about treating them like Gentiles and tax collectors, which is a biblical synonym of unbelievers. How, how do I treat an unbeliever? Well, you're a light to them and you preach to them the word of God, right? So what if you see a member sin against another member? So this, this is, again, we went through the Matthew 18 model where they sin against you. That was the primary clause of Matthew 18. But then we go to 1B. So we're, we're taking it to this question now. What if you see a member sin, another, sin against another member? So while Matthew 18 provides us with guidance about what to do when someone sins against you, but what if you just observed sin against another church member? What should you do then? Well, the answer is, it depends. <laughs> Galatians 6.1 tells us, and that's the one that, uh, that we've been quoting here a couple times, brothers, 
If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And Luke 17.3, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. On the other hand, the Bible also warns us not to be busy bodies looking for opportunities to point out faults in, all, in others, right? All of us are sinners. So it would be impossible and frankly unproductive to call the attention to every single sin we witness. So how do we know when it is appropriate an appropriate, an appropriate time to approach a brother or sister in sin? And I'm going to offer a couple of guidelines here. So first, is the sin bringing dishonor to God? Like every other, but in a way that really dishonors God and God's body. Is it visible enough that it's lying about God to non-Christians? Is it hurting others by causing them to be tempted or by setting bad example to younger Christians? Could it lead to discord and disunity in the church? Is it seriously harming the offender by damaging his relationship with God in other ways? If one or more of these answers are yes, then it would be probably appropriate to talk to the offender about the sin. The less, rela the less relationship you have with the person, the higher the bar for talking with them. The better you know them and the more trust in your relationship, the lower the bar. Right? And, and here we should mention about the caution of legalism, right? Where there is a personal conviction, that is a personal conviction for you, that might not be the personal conviction for that other person, where you attribute your personal conviction to the other person and go to them trying to correct their sin when it is actually conviction. So there's uh, areas of wisdom and prudence, right? When it comes to those areas of wisdom that we need to also not fall into because that's the very definition of legalism right there. And so those areas in which the Bible is very clear about, we already, Rusty already read some of, some of those scriptures that we need to see indeed that those things are dealt with. Now, over the years, much has been made of the differences between the discipline case of 1 Corinthians 5. And here's the situation where Paul tells the church to expel a man sleeping with his father's wife. And Matthew 18, which is the passage that we looked at, those two verses are made as if they were different or in conflict. So in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul doesn't ask about the man's repentance. He simply instructs the church to put him out of fellowship. So what's going on here? Is there some kind of fast track church discipline that Jesus didn't describe? Well, it's a sort of answer. That seems to be what's going on in 1 Corinthians 5. It's a sin that was so heinous. Thank you. I'm like... So beyond what was being accepted, acceptable in that society, that there is really nothing the man could say to convince the church of his repentance. Now, generally we follow the principle of innocent until proven guilty. You stay inside the church until through the steps of Matthew 18, it becomes evident that you're not repentant. But sometimes the credibility of any claim or repentance is so shot that the church should move quickly to move outside of the fellowship. Both for your good and the reputation of Christ, as we see in 1 Corinthians 5, then if by God's grace your claim to repentance becomes credible again, the ban of excommunication is removed. 
And we see that particular specific case of heinous, heinous sin. I have to look it up actually. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Huh? Malo. That's, that's close enough. <laughs> so, how do we relate to someone who's been excommunicated? And we talked briefly about this, right? And excommunicated means the last part of Matthew 18 where we said we treat him as a Gentile. Now, and that, and that actually, we have to think about this. How we deal with the unbelieving world. And then, how do we deal with this quote-unquote Christian who is now unrepentant, Right? So many times this will not be an issue because the individual has moved out of the area or no longer associates with the church or its members. But there have been examples where a church voted to terminate a person's membership and the individual would often attend the church's services where he or she had been expelled. Now this is good. We want that, per that, that to happen. We want that person to be constantly hearing God's word to be convicted of sin. And especially that church that kicked them out because apparently they're doing <laughs> some things right by applying church discipline. But what if that person also starts showing up at church and church's social events like dinners and, the and, and, and other evening uh, member fellowships? What then, right? Well, in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 5.11, we read that we should not associate with such a person. In Matthew 18.17, Jesus says to treat the person as you would a pagan or a tax collector. But what does this look like in practice? Well, it means that we should treat the individual as he is a, an unbeliever. Unbeliever. But not just as an unbeliever, but an unbeliever who tragically thinks he or she is okay. So we should encourage him or her to attend church, as I mentioned. And we should act lovingly and act kindly towards them when we do see them. But when we see them, we should take care to exhort them to repent. We should never simply interact casually as if nothing is wrong. Like we might another Christian or even a non-Christian who works, you know, who knows that he's not a Christian, right? But that is where the catch, you want to say, is when he thinks he is. With that clear evidence of unrepentant sin that went through the whole process of Matthew 18. That's the sense of 1 Corinthians 5.11. Not even eat with such a one. Of course, when the excommunicated person is a family member or co-worker, other scriptural obligations we have to the relationship might take precedence. But we are making a statement for Christ. Not for ourselves. We're just fallen creatures too. For Christ, for His name, for His honor. By saying to that person who has been excommunicated, well, you think that you're in Christ, but you don't seem to believe that this particular issue or sin, lifestyle, has anything to do with your union in Him. How can we have conversations that point to that? Maybe there's not even an understanding of the gospel, and that's the danger of many so-called Christian nations or areas, right, of our country that... Being born in that area equals being born a Christian, so quote to quote, or of a political party, without even a mention of the gospel in their lives. But now the last topic that we want to talk about here, because it's it's getting late and it's a an important one, and 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 there are many things that could be mentioned. And again, we encourage each other to go to the Word, like Mike said, go to the dead guys. Let's read upon first the Word of God. 
theologians, right? <laughs> and, and, and let's read upon what God says about all these instructions. But this is an overview of those things and how do we believe them to be done here at Cornerstone as well. But the last topic that is very important as well is how do we address, uh, how, how we need to address is what Scripture um, says about sin amongst the church leaders. Now, when we talk about church leaders here is the pastor, the elders, you know, the leader of the church. And, and, and this is applicable to, the pa- to any pastor of the church. You can call him pastor elder. So, and bear with me here because we're going to have scriptures and situations and we've got to follow along here. So one last push here at the end. So the guiding passage for this situation here comes from 1 Timothy 5, 19 and 20, which it points out that there's a special verse, a special designation that is talked about in relationship to elders, pastor. Do not admit, and this is what it says in 1 Timothy 5, 19, 20. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence or of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that, they, so that the rest may stand in fear. Paul is given special caution to protect elders from spurious attacks, right? Before a discipline action against an elder can be brought, there must be two or three witnesses. The wisdom of this is clear. Church leaders must often engage in situations that may lead to unfounded accusations against them. This, with this passage in mind, let me address two situations that might arise in the church. First, what if you hear rumors of an accusation against an elder? And second, what if you encounter an elder in sin? And so let's have First Timothy 5.19. If you have it, pull it up because we're going to relate to that, right? So First Timothy 5.19 and 20. So as it relates to what we're going to talk about in those two points. So what if a church leader sins? But those are rumors of accusations, right? Now, what if someone tells you that they've, been wit- that they've witnessed an elder's sin or a pastor's sin? Or think they have. What's your responsibility? First and foremost. To ensure you're not a party to gossip. First and foremost. You need to do it so that you're not a party to gossip and slander. Tell them to talk to that elder about it. Right? Not to you. Just like you would in any other situation. Actively discourage them from slandering that elder. In conversation like that. There are many ways in which we can start a statement like. There is sin. In this pastor's life. But then after that. After deconstructing the issue. It's more like an issue of bitter in that person. And bias against some things. That have happened. And we've seen that a lot. And so make, let's make sure. That what we're talking about. We're ta- we talked about objectivity. Etc. Right. But the first thing that you should do. If somebody comes to you in that spirit is. You immediately send them. Right. Talk to them about it. Now there are two exceptions in this rule. If you too have witnessed that particular sin, and this person is coming to you as per a requirement to be a witness, like First Timothy says, or if they're asking you to serve as a witness, even though you're not been a witness, but more on that a little bit, because we got to define here what the witness is, etc. So send them to confront the elder directly, just as you should with any other person as well, right? 
And it is up to us how long we can entertain slander and gossip, right? If you witness an elder in sin. Second, what if an elder sins against you or you, or you witness an elder sinning? What do you do then? Well, quite simply, talk to them about it. Keep in mind that the situation may not be as it appears. So act humbly, remembering that they are serving as an elder because, well, at least in the past, the church has found them to be above reproach. Which this brings me to this point, which is another mark of a healthy church, which is going through a process to get the leaders in the church in the place where they should be. Right? Because there are guidelines in First Timothy and Titus that talks about what a pastor should look like, which is what every Christian should look like, actually. So actually, if you want a good guidance on what your life should look like, yeah, do look up those. But it is a lifestyle for them in which they have been above reproach between the community and between believers as well. And, and those things come together so beautifully in God's church where you see that they're obedient in bringing up leaders, where you see that they're obedient about what, how sin is dealt, in, in, etc., how... The word of God is being preached by those men, etc. So you remember that the church, at least in the past, considered them. First Timothy, Titus approved, right? So it is wise to give them the benefit of the doubt. But what if you're uncomfortable about approaching them as well? Or perhaps, though I pray this never happens, they've sinned in intimidating or abusing you, right? It's okay to approach another elder in the church with your concern, where your intent is to keep the matter quiet and discreet and involve a minimal number of people. And by doing this, you're not violating First Timothy. Now, okay, so let's say that you've discussed the matter with the elder, perhaps open the scripture to show them their sin, right? And, but they do not repent. What now? Recall what I said earlier about how objective a sin is, Right? If it's an issue of pride, something that can be sh you, you can't be sure of, then stop pursuing the matter and pray, right? If the matter is something that's objectively verifiable, though like embezzlement or sexual misconduct, for example, then you must continue to follow 1 Timothy 5.19. I say must because discipline, even discipline of an elder, is not optional in the, ch in the church. This is your responsibility before God, right? What's the next step? Then speak to others who you know who witnessed the sin, if that was the case, and ask them to confront the elder with you. And if necessary, or actually very important that you do so, bring the matter to the other elders. And they will be acting as witnesses called for in 1 Timothy 5.19. And there is this general sense in the church, unfortunately, that elders and leaders and pastors in the church are untouchable. That there is a holiness about him a that even when they are clearly being in sin they are shielded and we just forget the biblical principle of who we all are in Christ those those people who are out there if they were called they were just called by God to serve and to be shepherds of sheep but, but they're sinners redeemed by grace who also are accountable before God and with a special scripture added to it so what if no one else is a witness then? Now this is the other situation. What then? Take for example a hypothetical situation where an elder makes an, an inappropriate advance to a woman in the church. And the woman is the only witness. 
So in those circumstances, the woman can talk to another elder about the situation, and this would not contradict with 1 Timothy 5.19, because her accusation would not be sufficient by itself to trigger the formal discipline process laid out in that passage. Right? Keep, keep tracking. <laughs> in this regard, the specific language here is instructive. It says, do not admit any charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So in this case, the woman is not formally accusing an elder before the church or asking that others accept an accusation as true. She's merely asking that someone else help establish whether or not her claim is true. The woman's disclosure to another elder would lead to further inquiry by that elder. But that in itself wouldn't trigger a formal church discipline. Now, here at Cornerstone, talking about this, you know, example of um, sin, we have a policy amongst the elders about not meeting with women alone. So we would not meet with, you know, if they have counsel or anything like that with them alone, we would always try to have the presence of our spouse, right? And so we also stay accountable with one another as the elders to regularly ask one another questions as it relates to our personal struggles and we minister to one another. We are the spiritual heads of, or the spiritual accountability of one another's and we are pastored by one another. And we strive to ensure an atmosphere of respect, safety, and trust with the, specifically with the ladies of the church as we have the male leadership. And we want to project that. And again, all of this is with the thing that we want to have in mind. And this is the honor of Christ. So a, a side note in that. On how we work together as elders. And another important aspect of plurality of elders. Because they are each other's pastors too. When there's singularity of, of, of pastors. Which there's biblical. There, people make biblical cases for those. There are, is, 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 there's a difficulty in accountability and um, having the opportunity to be ministered by other pastors, which is possible, but at the level of plurality of leadership, they ensure that the head of the church is actually Christ. And they are just called to serve in that church. So, in order to, for formal church discipline to begin, staying in that point of this single witness. The person who's been wronged should bring forward other elders who are willing to act as co-accusers with them. Now let me explain that there. People who can fulfill the role of witness in 1 Timothy 5.19, which is coming from the Greek directly, that is eyewitnesses. But how can we see this if the scripture requires this and the word means this so how do we bring this together? So even if they have not been eyewitnesses to this specific sin, but are witnesses of behaviors, of evidence, of their knowledge, uh, the, the knowledge of the accused and their knowledge of the accuser, etc. Those are things that can be brought together to make the claim legitimate. They are witnesses of behaviors and evidence of character that would make the claim legitimate because of their careful observation, their knowledge of the accused and their knowledge of the accuser. We want to make it clear that that is usually the best approach to take for another elders because they're more likely to have information about past accusations made against that elder. 
So they're in the best position to fulfill that position of witness and or co-accuser that we mentioned. So keep in mind what Paul has to say to church leaders immediately following those verses actually. Verse 21. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels. I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. Doing nothing from partiality. Those are pretty heavy words. And as elders, we have a unique accountability before God not to overlook sin in their midst. Or in our midst. And so just to bring all this together, I know we've touched on many different points. And I hope and pray that the Holy Spirit will bring to us only that which is biblical and relevant. And that we can also continue to study God's word in this topic. But why does this church discipline matter? And that is, as we've answered most of the questions, because church matters. And the, only, and the church only matters when it's different from the world. Think of Jesus' words in Matthew 5, right? You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? <laughs> it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Church discipline is the tool Jesus gave us all the way back in Matthew 18 when he inaugurated the church to keep us different from the world. When we look and feel different, we herald the gospel in a profound and compelling way. We spur each other on toward love and good deeds. We protect the message of the gospel for the next generation. But when we become just like the world... All of this fades into nothingness. So let's strive together as a church to persevere in faith. Using this tool of discipline. When we must. For the glory of God. And for the salvation of our world. Amen. Any final, yeah, final comments? And the idea is always to stay in the initial verses of Matthew 18. You have gained your brother, right? That's our prayer. But God gives us the guidelines of the rest. And how many of us have heard the following verses out of context? <laughs> what you shall bind in heaven is already, been, you know, oh my goodness. It's, just, it's what, you know, how, how, let's jump up a couple of verses behind and see what the context is all about. And that one too, yes. <laughs>